what do you see when you look at people? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, have you ever thought about not only what you see, but what should you see when you look at people and why that would even matter? I'm becoming more and more convinced that what we see when we look at the people in the world around us will determine how faithful we are in our service and devotion to Jesus. Let me give you an example. One of my heroes of the faith was an evangelist of the late 1800s named D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was not educated by any standards. I think he had like a sixth grade education. He could barely read from what I have read about him. He was not trained for the ministry. He was not raised in a necessarily Christian home. He was a shoe salesman that was saved under the ministry of his Sunday school teacher as a young man. And when Moody understood that Jesus was real, salvation was by grace through faith in Christ, he made it his life's mission to help others come to know Jesus Christ. His ministry was far more fruitful than many of his contemporaries who were more educated than him, more eloquent than him, better speakers than him. I mean, he did so many things that were shocking to the world of the day. Led revivals in America and in England. Started a church that still exists in Chicago. Founded one of the first Bible publishing or hymnal publishing companies in America. All of these things are still going on today, still usable today. And so one day, some men went to Moody, and they wanted to know why his ministry was so effective. And they asked him, what makes your ministry so effective? Why are you able to win so many people to Jesus in your preaching and in your personal life? You see, Moody wasn't just a guy who, who preached and had big crowds. Moody actually shared the gospel every day with someone. That was a, a commitment that he made when he got saved. There are stories of him lying in bed at midnight in Chicago, realizing he had not shared the gospel with an unbeliever that day, and getting up and walking the streets, trying to find somebody walking the street at midnight so that he could share the gospel with him. So they asked him, why is your ministry so fruitful? And Moody took them to the, to the window of his hotel, and he had them look out at the park, and he said, what do you see? And the people responded, and they said, well, we see, you know, people walking their dog, families playing, all the things that you would see at a park. And they turned to him and said, what do you see, Mr. Moody? And with tears in his eyes, Moody said, I, I see souls. Precious souls that will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. That is the reason Moody's ministry was so fruitful. What he saw determined how he served. What should we see when we look at the world around us? What should we see in our own lives that would help us to be faithful and fruitful in our service to Jesus? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. That's page 884 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we no longer regard according to the flesh, regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The title of the message this morning is Transformed Vision, Seeing Like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today and we praise you for your grace and your goodness. We praise you for all that you've given us and all that you've done. Father, we ask you to help us today to take your word and apply it to our lives. Help us, God, to, to see the world in the way that we should, to see people in the way that we should, to see ourselves in the way that we should. Father, we need you to guide us and we need you to transform us. Lord, the way that we view the world in the natural sense is not the way that we're supposed to view the world as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. So today, let your Holy Spirit show us where we're wrong. Let him lead us to make changes. Help us, God, to surrender to that, to make the changes that are necessary. Help us, God, to be more and more like Jesus in the way that we view the world. Help us to be concerned about the lost and the salvation of others. Help us to be concerned about the spiritual growth and health of others, God, not just ourselves. Work in our hearts, guide us, and just make us who we ought to be. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me, God, to, to speak your word and your ways for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. In verse 20, Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. And that, in a lot of ways, that's kind of a, a key verse for this particular section. And to me, that has always been a neat idea of being an ambassador for Christ. Think about it, it makes a lot of sense, right? An ambassador is a, a spokesman for a country, right? And, and an ambassador lives in another country than the country they're an ambassador for, right? So like the American ambassador to France lives in France. And their, their goal, their purpose there is to speak for our government to promote the, the values, the hopes, the dreams, the goals, the, the agenda that our government has for various things, and that's what we as Christians are. We are Christ's ambassadors to a lost and a dying world. We live in a foreign land. Our homeland is in heaven, but we are here. Our main objective is to press the agenda of Christ, to do His will, to be His spokesman, to tell people His agenda for their lives and for others. And what we see in this passage is really pretty weighty about how we should live and what we should see. And what I want us to understand 
is that how I see determines how I serve. How I see myself determines how I serve Christ. How I see what my role and my responsibility is will determine how I serve Christ. How I see others will determine how I serve Christ in taking His agenda into their lives and trying to help them come to know Him. And in this passage, I think there are three ways that we are supposed to see ourselves and the world around us. Number one, I need to see people in light of eternity. In verse 16, Paul starts with therefore. Therefore is based upon what he said in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul is talking about there that he has been born again now. Now that he has come to know Jesus Christ and that Jesus has died for him and risen again, Paul has given his life to live for Jesus, to do the will of Christ in this world. And the way that that has transformed him and the way that that has made a difference in his life, it goes beyond just actions he takes, but it goes to the the very nature and the way he views the world around him. Because he says, from now on, therefore, because my life is lived for Jesus Christ, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. And the idea of regarding no one according to the flesh is basically that I don't judge people by the world's standards. But I don't look at people and make my evaluations on them based upon the way the world does it. Now you think about Paul. You know that Paul was a Pharisee before he was converted. And as a Pharisee, Paul had a particular way he viewed people. Now, Pharisees were very legalistic. Pharisees were very judgmental. Right? The whole phrase, holier than thou, that, was, that is a Pharisee. Pharisees viewed people like this. They, they looked at other people to see ways that they had failed. Right? A Pharisee even looked at other Pharisees to try to find ways in which they didn't live up to God's laws and God's standards so they could say, I'm better than them. That was the way they viewed other Pharisees. Then they viewed other Jews in light of this. They weren't as committed to God as Pharisees were. And then there were some Jews that because of the life they lived, they had sinned too far to even be saved. They weren't worthy of associating with. They weren't worthy of talking to. You didn't reach out to them. You didn't eat with them. You didn't talk to them. You didn't even, when they walked through the market, they would comb their garments tied about them so they didn't even touch those dirty, rotten sinners. And then on top of that, Paul was a Jew and not a Gentile. Gentiles were basically dogs to the Jewish mind, and not in the man's best friend kind of way either. It was a very negative way that they viewed them. And then on top of that, all of that, Paul was also a Roman citizen from birth, rich, privileged. Because of the way Paul was raised, because of who Paul was and the way he lived, Paul tended to look at the world and classify them in all kinds of ways. Sinner, half-hearted, dog, you name it. He viewed them in that way. 
And what Paul says here is that all of that changed on the day that he met Jesus Christ. Because once he met Jesus, all of the stuff he thought was really important that separated him from others, it really wasn't that important after all. That from the moment he met Jesus, the way he viewed the world, it had to be different. He couldn't evaluate the world by the world's standards. He couldn't evaluate the world in the way that he had been taught. What mattered now was those who were in Christ and those who needed Christ. But look at what he wrote to the Corinthians or to the, the Colossians. And we have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Right. So I've been born again and I've got a new nature and that's being changed constantly so I can be more and more like Jesus. And notice the result. Well, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Right? What mattered were not the artificial barriers that the world erects. Right? Because he lists various barriers that the world would erect. There are racial barriers. Right? There are social or economic barriers. There are... Um, All kinds of things that that as a culture, the world says this is what makes us better than them. This is what separates us from them. When you look at them, this is what you should see. And the Romans, the Romans had an idea that Roman culture was so superior to the rest of the world that a barbarian was basically anyone who wasn't a Roman. Or a barbarian was someone, that they, they may not be a Roman, but they're someone who just doesn't accept that Roman culture is better than the rest of the world. And what I find so challenging and convicting about that is that as Americans, we're a lot like that. Now, we wouldn't say that someone is a barbarian for not being an American necessarily, But we tend to be pretty convinced that our culture is by far superior to all others. To the extent that if someone doesn't speak our language as well as we think they ought, we think they're unintelligent. We judge people by their nationality. We judge people by their social or economic standing. Now, all of these things, they are artificial barriers. They they keep us from reaching out to people to help them come to know Jesus Christ. Christ. They keep us from telling them and inviting them and doing what we need to do to reach them. When the reality is their soul is more important than their culture. But even harder, their soul is more important than than our culture. Their soul is more important than than their social or economic standing. Their, their soul is more important than, than our social or economic standing. Their soul is more important than their ethnicity. What matters, what we should see as we look at people in light of eternity is, do they know Jesus or do they not? Because in the end, that is all that truly matters. If we are going to to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the way 
in which he expects, demands, and deserves. We need to view the world in the same way that he did. And I love this particular passage. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, he didn't see the artificial barriers of culture, race, social or economic standing. When Jesus looked at the multitudes, he didn't see their sin, their flaws, their failures. What he saw, their hurts, their needs, their desperate need for him. Above all else, that's what he understood. They needed him. That's why he was the friend of sinners. Jesus really wasn't known for going around to sinners and and being judgmental and harsh. They had Pharisees for that. They didn't need another Pharisee. They needed a savior. And that's what he came to be. And there's a couple of things about this passage that anytime we look at it, I always want to point out. And one is that when Jesus looked at the multitudes, he knew their sins and he knew their flaws and he knew their failings and he knew those things perfectly. Right? He wasn't relying on a vague book post to make a decision about them. He wasn't relying on the rumor that he heard at work about them. No one said, have you heard about Josephus and what's going on in his life? And then gave him imperfect knowledge of the situation to make a decision on. As Jesus looked on the crowds, he had perfect knowledge of every sin they had ever committed. He had perfect knowledge of every failure they had ever made. Every flaw that was a part of their character. And despite having a perfect knowledge of those things, he didn't look with judgment or condemnation. He looked with compassion. And why that's important is when we look down our noses at people, we don't have that knowledge. We don't know everything about the situation. At best, We know part of the situation. We know part of the story. I mean, have you ever, have you ever made a decision about something? You you read an article, you heard a story, you made a decision, and you were righteously indignant about the whole thing. I can't believe anyone would be like that or act like that. And then later, more of the story came out. And it was like, oh, wow, I was horribly wrong. I mean, I, I was unbelievably wrong. It happens all the time. We can't, we have to be very careful about looking with judgment because we don't have all the facts. But Jesus did, and he still didn't look with judgment, he looked with compassion. A second truth about this passage that we've got to understand, is that unlike us, Jesus really was better than them. 
Had he looked with them at judgment and said, I'm better than you, it would have been true. Because he was perfect. And he was holy. He really had never done the things that they had done. He had never thought the things that they had thought. He had never given in to one sinful impulse ever. He had always done the Father's will perfectly. You and I, well, we can't say that. We may not have the same temptations they have. And we may not have failed in the ways that they have failed. And we may not be flawed in the ways that they're flawed. But honesty compels us to say, we are sinners. We are failures. We are flawed. We have no business looking down our nose at people who fail and sin and are flawed in ways different than we are, thinking that because theirs is different, we are better. The way we see things has to change. We need to see people in light of their hurts and their needs and most importantly, of their desperate need for Jesus. We need to look at the, at the people and know that they are souls, precious souls, that will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus. Part of being redeemed, transformed, seeing the world differently. The way that we see will determine the way that we serve. If I see sinners and failures and people that I am better than, I will not serve Christ by serving them. I will not take the gospel to them. I will not accept them as members in our fellowship. I will always push them away. If I see them in light of a culture, a race, or a social or economic standing, I will never see an equal. I will never see someone who can be saved as I have been saved. I will never see someone who can be a part of the body of Christ with us. The way we see determines how we serve. We need to see people in light of eternity. Secondly, we need to see what God can do. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed. Behold, all things become new. The Bible lays great stress on the fact that when a person comes to Jesus Christ, they are transformed. They are made differently. That's what this whole series is about. But that's a, a huge theme throughout Scripture. Jesus saw it as such a, a radical transformation that he called it being born again. That we are, we are not the same. Right? Christians are not re-educated. Christians are not reformed. Christians are reborn. They are remade. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not the same as we were before we believed in Jesus. He has changed everything about us. The Bible gives us a lot of things that change when we come to know Jesus Christ. We're given a, a new heart that gives us new and right desires. Ezekiel the prophesied about this. He said, I will give you a new heart 
And I will put a new spirit in you and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and careful to obey my regulations. Before we came to know Jesus, we were rebellious against Jesus. We didn't want to do the things that he told us to do. We didn't want to live a holy life. We didn't want to follow his decrees. We, we didn't care about those things. But now that we've been born again, we've been given a new heart and we, we desire to do the will of God. Right now, not that we keep that desire perfectly. We fail at times, but the desire is there. Listen, a lack of desire to do the will of God is always a bad sign. Within every truly born again person, there is a desire to know God and make him known. There is a desire to do the will of God, the one of God and the ways of God in every area of our lives. That is a part of the new birth. We are also given a new citizenship. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son. The Bible says there are two separate and distinct kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God. Prior to having faith in Jesus Christ, we are all a part of the kingdom of darkness. And that's all we'll ever be. Right? On our own, we cannot escape that kingdom. On our own, we cannot escape the, the pull of our, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What it takes is a redeemer, a savior to come in, to swoop in from the kingdom of darkness and take us out and move us into the kingdom of light. And that is what Jesus is. When we believe in him, he takes us out of one kingdom and he puts us in another. It's a change that he makes within us. But we're also given a new nature. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Before we came to know Jesus Christ, our nature was sinful and corrupt. Our nature was given in to the, the passions and desires of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And again, that was, that was all the power we had to do. We couldn't reform ourselves. We couldn't re-educate ourselves to make it all different. We had to be changed from the inside out. And that's what Jesus did when we called upon Him and we believed in Him. He created a new nature within us. Our ability to live for Him, to glorify Him, to know Him. It's because of His work in our lives. And He gives these changes and so many more He makes in us as we come to know Him, when we believe on Him. And the Bible is filled with examples of people that, that God radically changed. Just, just a few. You have Moses. Uh, we, we know Moses, the great lawgiver and the great leader of Israel. But, I mean, we forget what a radical change God had to make in his life to get him to that point. I mean, Moses was, he really wasn't raised a Jew. He was raised as the privileged son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses had, had anger management issues. I mean, when, when Moses meets God at the burning bush, he's hiding from Pharaoh. Why? Because he got mad and killed someone. And in fact, that would be an issue that he struggled with all throughout of his life. 
And so God took a person who was raised as the privileged son of Pharaoh's daughter, the enemy of God. A man with impulse control issues. A man who, if we can accept what some of what Scripture says to be understood, he had problems speaking. He had an unwillingness to do the will of God. I mean, when God met him and he saw the bush, God was like, go. And Moses was just filled with excuses as to why he couldn't. His last excuse was just, I'm not going. Send somebody else. But that encounter with God, it made a difference in his life. He left. He was a great leader. And he was a great deliverer. And he was a great prophet for God and spokesman for God. The story isn't about how great Moses is. The story is about how great God is to transform Moses. To make him into something. There's Peter. Peter is one of my favorite guys in the New Testament. For a lot of reasons. First, Peter was a common guy. right? He was a fisherman when Jesus met him. Now, fisherman, I mean, that was not a, a bad job. But it wasn't a prestigious job. It wasn't a, a job that would normally lead to someone being a religious leader following. That wasn't the second career after retiring from fishing. Peter would have been only mildly educated. right? Because at a certain age... When you, they determine you're not going to be able to be a, a scribe or a Pharisee, you kind of get out of the education field and into the work field. Peter also had foot and mouth disease. And this is why I like Peter. Peter spoke first and thought second. More than once. Peter also was not especially courageous. Lord, I won't deny you. These other guys, they're going to, but not me. I'll die with you. Jesus is arrested. What did Peter do? He fled, and then he denied him three times. Then he also spoke powerfully on the day of Pentecost. When told to quit preaching about Jesus, said, You judge what's right in the sight of God. To obey God or to obey man. I cannot help but speak the things I have seen and heard. The story isn't about how Peter mustered up courage. The story isn't about how Peter re-educated himself to understand his rights as a citizen. The story is about how God got a hold of him and transformed him into something significant. There's, There's Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector when we meet him. And that's one of those things that we we miss because we don't understand all that went into being a tax collector. In fact, I think he was a chief tax collector. She was like a boss. And here's how tax collectors worked. Number one, they were Jews who worked for an oppressive government that they considered to be a conquering government. Right. So imagine Canada attacks America and conquers it. And some of us go to work for Canadians to to uh, to push the taxes onto our fellow Americans. How would we feel about those people? Well, that's how they felt about Jewish tax collectors. But not only did they assess the taxes, they cheated their people. The tax showed that, that red owes $30. Well, if I can press $40 out of red, I get to keep 10 for myself. 
And the more I can press out of you that's over what the Roman government charged, the the richer I become. And Rome doesn't care. Not only does Rome not care, they give me soldiers to shake you down. To help me oppress you. And I'm one of you. How do you feel about me? Probably not friendly thoughts of I'll invite him for dinner, right? Well, that's how the Jews thought about Matthew. And yet he became a gospel writer, preacher, and an apostle. So when Jesus called, he he got up and he walked away. Never went back to that life again. And again, the story is not of Matthew the reformer. Or Matthew who... Who realized that his people were right. The story is about Jesus. Who changed his life. And, and then the final one is Paul. Paul is one of the biggest ones. Because Paul, while he was a Pharisee and, and supposedly devoted to God. Let's, let's, let's not forget that Paul was a persecutor of the church. Right? Paul actively sought out other believers. In Jesus Christ, in an effort to help them or to force them to deny their faith in Jesus. To turn against Him. He was responsible for killing Christians. If Paul lived today, he would be on terrorist watch lists. He would be beheading people for being Christians. He would be the guy going into Christian schools in other countries and pulling out and segregating the people and killing those who were Christians. That's who Paul was. That's what Paul did. And then he met Jesus. Everything changed. Paul sacrificed, suffered, and served Jesus. And the story is about wonder-working power of God to take any person and make them different. And what God did then, God can do today. God's life-transforming power has not changed. His ability to save a soul and change a life is no different now than it was then. Anytime we look at someone and say, they'll never change. We are speaking in unbelief. We do not believe in the life transforming power of God. And we are focused on what they can do instead of what God can do. Right? Because on their own, they couldn't change. On their own, they couldn't be different. But once you bring God into the equation, well, everything is different. What God can do in any person's life is huge. The Bible is filled with examples. We, we know people that are different because of Jesus. And as we look at the world around us, what we have to see is not who they are, but what God can do. We have to see what God can make them. The change that Jesus can make. Because if we see anything else, we won't serve Jesus by reaching out to them. Because they'll never believe. 
And they'll never change and they'll never be any different. That's just who they are and the way they are. How I see determines how I serve. And if I want to serve Jesus faithfully and fruitfully, I have to see what God can do in a person's life. And then finally, I have to see my part in God's mission. Verse 18 says, now, all things, all that change is of God, who has reconciled us unto himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You and I have been reconciled to God. You and I, as believers, have been brought from a place of unbelief to belief. We have been brought from a place of lack of care to great care. A lack of love to love. And if we understand Scripture properly... We've actually been brought from a place of being the enemies of God through our wicked actions and attitudes to being the friends of God. And all of that happened through Jesus. I mean, that's the point. That all of this reconciliation, it comes through Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can be reconciled to God. You know, we were... We could go back and talk about in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve's sin and were born with a sin nature. And I think that's all true. We're born with a propensity to sin, a, a resistance to the rule of God over our lives. But let's, let's not worry about that today. Let's just think about our personal actions. Right? In our lives, we have sinned. Right? Not, because, not because we were born in a particular state, but we have, we have committed actions that were wrong. We have done what God has said not to do. We have not done what God has said we are supposed to do. All of that is sin. And so, on our own, apart from Adam, without even acknowledging that, we have put ourselves at odds with God. God is the ruler and the king, and he has said, this is right and this is wrong. And at times in all of our lives, we have said, I don't care what you want. I will do my thing. I will do my will. And God would have been right and just in allowing us to stay in that rebellious state. Allowing us to suffer the consequences for our sins. You and I, we deserve the punishment and the judgment of God just as much as anyone else does. The difference isn't that we're, we're smarter or that we're better or that we're less of sinners. The difference is we have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. God has reached out to us and He has opened our understanding. And He has shown us our sin and revealed our Savior and made us aware that we too can be saved. That when Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that was for us. And we answered that call. We ran to meet the Savior. But how did that reconciliation happen? Did, did reconciliation happen where just God parted the skies and spoke, Stacy, did that how it worked for you? Do you know how 
how God worked reconciliation in my life. He started with a, a godly grandmother that had a picture in her bedroom. of Jesus standing outside a door without a doorknob and me asking, why is there no doorknob on that door? Her saying that door is the door to your heart. Jesus won't force his way in. He has to be invited in by you. And you need to call upon Jesus and ask him to save you if you've never done that. And I didn't respond then. I mean, I, I didn't respond. But the reconciliation happened through that. It happened through Sunday school teachers that taught the word and shared the gospel. It happened through my mom and dad praying for me, praying with me and urging me to repent of my sins and, and believe in Jesus Christ. It happened through preachers preached the gospel, urged me to repent of my sins and believe in Jesus Christ. See, I, I didn't come to know Jesus Christ and I wasn't reconciled to God because God parted the, spot, the skies and spoke through the trees. I became reconciled to God through faith in Jesus because someone came to me and told me the gospel and urged me to be reconciled to God. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was the same for you. Although if God did part the skies and speak, I would love to hear that story. More than likely, you came to know Jesus Christ because someone told you about Jesus. Here is the important thing for us to get. What others have done for us, we are to do for others. And this is what he says. Look, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their transgressions to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You and I, we are ministers of Jesus Christ. We are meant to be ministers of reconciliation. Our job, the reason that God left us here, is not to have a posh, easy life. It is not to acquire stuff. God has left you and I here so that we can take the word of reconciliation, the word of the gospel, and we can go to others and try to help them come to know Jesus Christ. You and I were saved to serve. And a part of the way we serve is by being a minister of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I mean, just let the weight of that settle in. Ambassadors for Christ. Everywhere you go. Today, tomorrow, for the rest of your life. You are, you are a minister, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You are His representative on earth. You are the only Christian somebody knows. You are the best Christian somebody knows. People will make decisions about who Christ is and what He is like. How significant He is based upon the lives that you and I live. And that's a weighty responsibility, but that, that is our responsibility nonetheless. But our responsibility isn't just to be a good example. I mean, I think it starts there. Certainly, we have to be good examples. Right? Our words have to match our walk. But let's not underestimate the importance of our words, because look at what he goes on to say. 
We are ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, at some point, we have to talk to people about Jesus. We have to tell them about who he is and what he's done. We have to explain sin and salvation and the judgment to come. And we not only tell them about Jesus, we, we urge them to embrace Jesus. Right? Notice the word, um, lost my place, as though God were pleading through us, right? pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Those are strong words. Those aren't the words of, hey, would you like to know Jesus? No, okay, no, hey. Right? Those are, are, are words of, in other places it's translated as beg. And as we go out with the message of reconciliation, we are to urge, to plead, to beg people to repent of their sins, to trust in Jesus and be saved. And as we do this, we are speaking for God. We are speaking for Christ and God is speaking through us. And that's, that's weighty, isn't it? I mean, that's, this weighs on my conscience every time I preach. As I speak, I have to be careful of who I represent. Right? Because the stupid things I say, that's probably not God. Right? But when God, when I speak the word, and I speak the gospel, that is God speaking through me. And as I implore people, God is working through that to draw them to Christ. But it's the same for you as it is for me. You and I are to go to a lost and a dying world. And we are to tell them the word of reconciliation. That right now you are, you are not in a relationship with God because of your sin. But God has taken care of that. God has sent His Son to die on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sins. And because of what Jesus has done and because He rose from the dead, you can know Him and you can be in a relationship with Him and you can be saved if you would repent and believe. Please repent and believe. That is all of our part in God's mission. And this is critical for us to see. Because for so many believers, they do not see their part in that. The Bible is pretty clear. You and I, have a part to play in the salvation of others. Now, we don't save them. It's God who makes the changes. It's God who does the saving. Our part is to be Christ's ambassador, to go to them, share the gospel, implore them to be reconciled to Christ. And if we are ever to serve Jesus faithfully, We have got to see our part in that. Until you and I see our part in God's mission, we will never serve Jesus faithfully. So do you, does the way you serve show that you see things this way? What do you you see when you look at others? What do you see when you look at yourself?
you and I, we, we have got to. We've got to see people in light of eternity. We have got to see people in light of what God can do in them, through them, and for them. And we have got to see our part in God's mission to reconcile the world, make a difference in those around us. Stand.